says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And Father, we humbly just ask in this moment that you'd help us to continue to worship now. Lord, as we've sang and prayed and fellowshiped, we believe this is a part of our worship too as we offer to you now our attention and just ask, help us, Lord, prepare our hearts. We want to have hearts that are good and fertile soil that you by your spirit can plant the word of God deep within and that it would bring forth good fruit from our lives. So give us an ear to hear this morning what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Help us to be attentive and receptive. Make us that way, Lord, by the work of your spirit now and help us to be responsive to what you are saying to us personally through this section of scripture. Speak, Lord. We ask this believing you want to and will in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, many things in this life I have found can start out good and then ultimately somehow they can take a turn and become bad. Sometimes we launch out into a relationship and initially it's going really good and sometimes it'll last a few weeks, a few months, maybe even sometimes a few years. It can be really good and then sometimes relationships can go bad. Sometimes we may launch out into some endeavor, whether it's some opportunity we embrace and it starts out really good and then ultimately some things happen and that opportunity ends up going bad. Sometimes we launch out into a business or some new venture in life and it starts out really good and then ultimately some things happen and it ends up going bad. I want to assure you this morning that one thing you can rest assured that will always remain good and will never go bad is God. God will always remain good. Listen, life may go bad. Relationships may go bad. Businesses may go bad. Even ministries, to be quite frankly, sometimes go bad. But God will never go bad. God will always remain good. He will be the continuous, constant, one good thing in life that you can always rely on. The goodness of God will never change. And this passage that we're looking at together this morning, I think sort of gives a injunction regarding experiencing the goodness of God. And he declares the goodness of God to start with in verse 17 and then describes multiple ways, I think, in these verses, how we can then experience God's goodness, how we should respond to God's goodness properly. If you remember the backdrop of where we're coming into this morning in James 1, James has just addressed some wrong perceptions that sometimes can develop in people's minds and perspectives about God himself, about our struggles in life, and even about temptation and sin. And we saw in our verses last time that he proved that God is never to be blamed as the one responsible for when we enter into sin. 
that we never have a right justifiably because God is good and therefore God does not cause wrong or sinful desires within us. Those wrong desires, James says, arise from within us. And we need to have ownership of our own wrong desires. And he says it's when those wrong desires are not restrained and we allow ourselves to be drawn away. We act upon sinful opportunity and that gives birth to or produces the sin that we commit in our lives on occasion. And God doesn't want us to be deceived regarding the origin of temptation or how sin happens because sin wants to take root in your life. It wants to sink down root in my life so that it then can begin to expand its influence over our lives and its level of indulgence and bring destruction. And sin always robs a life of of what good things God wants for it by bringing the bad and destructive consequences that sin does. Well, one other thing that James does not want us to be deceived about is the nature of God himself and the very fact that God is good and he wants good things for our lives and he desires to plant his word into our hearts to bring forth good fruit in our lives rather than the bad fruit that sin would bring. So James, in a sense, says in verse 16, don't be deceived. God is not evil. He does not cause evil. In contrast to that, he then there goes on to say, in contrast to that wrong perception about God, rather, he says, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And that comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He talks here in verse 17 about the nature of God, particularly in two ways. First of all, he talks about in the first part of verse 17 about the goodness of God, which continually directs God to have a giving nature and to want to do good things in our lives. And then in the second half of verse 17, he describes the constancy of God or the fact that God will remain the same and he's always constant and that assures us he's never going to change and he will be stable to who he is, not only in his goodness, but in all of his ways and his attributes for that matter. So the first thing he mentions in verse 17 is the goodness of God and how that continually directs God to have a giving nature and to want to give and do good things in our lives. He says in verse 17, there every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Now you notice you find there the double use in the English translation of the word gift there in verse 17. He says every good gift and then he repetitiously says and every perfect gift. Now in the original language, though the word gift is translated that way in English, it's actually two different Greek terms that are being used there. One actually indicates the giver himself and the other term indicates the way of giving or the type of gifts that are given. The first term that's translated gift in our English Bible here refers to being good and therefore being a giver. The second term that's used there actually is a reference to what is given always being good for us. So in a sense, you could translate verse 17, every good act of giving and every perfect gift comes from the Father above. Again, the idea here that it's the goodness of God that makes him want to give. It's the very nature of God because he is good that makes him want to have a giving heart. When you read through the Psalms, you notice there are multiple references within there. It kind of shows up repeatedly statements like God is good. 
It talks about the goodness of God. And the idea of that is that God's very nature is wholesome. He has the most superior moral quality that is possible in a being. We read in the Psalms, Oh, how great is your goodness. The goodness of God endures continually. Because God's nature is good, God is desirous to want to give and to show his goodness. He wants to show his goodness. He wants to demonstrate it through kind ways. God's heart is to be good to people on the earth by doing good things, by working in good ways in people's lives. You notice in verse 17 here, James refers to God metaphorically and we have many metaphors and analogies in the Bible that describe God. He's a potter. He's a shepherd. Well, here James refers to God by referring to him here as a father. And the idea here is a good father. What an ideal father should be. And a good father loves his children deeply. And a good father, because of his love for his children, by nature wants to care for them and provide for them whatever they need. No one had to tell me when I started having children, it's your responsibility to get out there in the world and to work hard and to sacrifice and eke a living out of this hard world to make sure that they're taken care of and protected and they receive what is necessary for them. That was just their inherently it was there naturally it was the byproduct of becoming a father of these children whom you automatically have this love for and a good father therefore is foremost concerned about the welfare of his children a father wants what is best for his kids and a father is willing therefore to do whatever is necessary because a father not only wants to take care of them but most fathers want to do actually above and beyond what they need it actually gives pleasure to a father to want to bless their children to want to do even more than they need but actually do good things in their lives to bring joy and happiness and pleasure to them well the bible tells us that god is the perfect father he's an ideal father there's no flaws in him. There's no limitations. I mean, there are things that I would love to do for my kids, but as a human being with limited resources and capability, there at times has to be limits to how much I would like to bless them because I need to be reasonable in regards to responsibilities. Well, listen, God has boundless resources. He has no limitations. There's no lack of love in his heart or weakness in his nature. He's good and kind and therefore he has a giving heart and he wants to bless. Now verse 17 also describes not only the fact that God is good and therefore giving, what it's also indicating is that God also gives good gifts. That is when he gives, he always gives what is good for us. He always gives what is best for us in what he actually gives. God sends into our life routinely gifts of kindness. On occasion, he'll perform good works in our lives to bless us in helpful ways. He'll find good things to do. And even when God answers our prayers as we come before him and we express our needs as we should. As we come before God and we lay out our desires and, and say, Lord, this is what my desire is, the desire of my heart. Listen, that's okay too. And the wonderful thing is that as God hears us ask of him as a father about our needs and our desires, the reason that God wants to work in our lives is not just, listen, it's not just to give what's barely sufficient. 
And it's never going to be what's giving what bad in our life. In fact, quite honestly, it is the opposite end of the spectrum. God doesn't want to answer our prayers with what's bad or barely sufficient. He wants to give us what's good for our lives. He wants to give us what's best for our lives. So as you pray for the desire of your heart and you thought that person was supposed to be your spouse because it was the desire of your heart, it may just be that God who loves you enough says, trust me when I tell you. That would not be good. Because they're doing a very good job in the dating process. And listen, the dating process, I try and tell my daughters this all the time because I have three daughters and they're becoming adult age now. It is the most deceptive thing on the planet because you are trying to convince another human being of the opposite sex of all the other beings of this gender. I'm the one you should spend the rest of your life with. It's deceptive. It's not real. They're putting their best foot forward when they're dating. And that's why, listen... Sometimes the Lord will bring a termination even to a relationship because out of his goodness, he wants to give us what is best in our lives. Sometimes the Lord will allow something even to come to closure or to an end or something we pray for or desire. We may wonder, why God, if you're good, why aren't you doing this? Or what? And the reality is, is right, because he's good and he knows all things, that may be why he's working in the ways that he is. And who would not be right to say that there have been times when we've asked God for a need in our life or we've prayed about something and what God ultimately does and gives, he doesn't just do what's sufficient. We find ourselves, oh, Lord, this is amazing. This is way better than what I was thinking you were going to do. I can tell you that firsthand. I prayed for a spouse. I had no clue that God was going to make it as good and wonderful and give the best possible woman on the planet to me. I kind of feel like he showed partiality. God gives what's best. Because he's good, his gifts are always going to be what's good for us. Jesus, when he was teaching about how we should relate to God as our father with the disciples, one who is good and loving with his children, he said this in Matthew 7. Jesus said, What man is there among you if his son asks for bread? We'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. The idea there is a son comes, Father, I'm hungry. That, that a father is going to have some ill intent to play a practical joke on a son and, and hand him something that looks like a piece of bread and he bites into it and breaks his tooth because it was a stone actually. No father, he said, no human father would even do that. No father is going to give to his child something that's harmful, no good father. And then he says this, if you being evil as human beings know how to give good gifts to your children, listen, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? This is what we are to truly believe of the nature of God, that we're not to be deceived, to think somehow, no matter what our experience has been with a human father, because that can cause us some confusion, and I'm sorry if that was your situation, or because of anything else you've expected to realize the nature of God is that he's good and he's a good father and you should expect him to relate to you in good ways not because you're a good boy or a good girl but just because he's good he's a good father and so James says here all these good things come down from the one who is good continuously he says coming down from above and it's interesting that word comes down it's in the present tense the idea is continually the goodness of God is continually being sent forth from heaven into our lives. Psalm 34.10 says the young lions suffer 
and lack, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And of course, we remember then, therefore, if there's something I lack in my life, it's not that God's not good. It may just mean it's not really a good thing, though I might think it is. That I have a father who loves me and he's going to do what's best because he wants what is good for me. And in order to demonstrate most clearly, I think, his goodness to humanity, what is the greatest gift that has ever come down from above that God has given? It's Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus declared in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus went on to say, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Paul, understanding the same idea of Jesus being God's greatest love gift and the best gift that could ever be given, Paul in Romans 6.23 said, Though the wages of our sin is death, that is what we deserve, the payment for our sin, which we all commit because we all sin, and we all deserve punishment and payment for our sin, he says, though that is true, he says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God has given this gift in his son Jesus, that Jesus has addressed our sin dealt with what needed to be done and he is offering us the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in heaven through his own life if we come to him as the savior well after the goodness of god is referred to there in verse 17 the verse also as i said speaks of the constancy of god which assures us that god is never going to change he's constant he remains the same. He is stable. He calls him there in verse 17, the father of lights, he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, when he says there, the father of lights, what the language indicates is the father of the lights, indicating that he is the one who gave origin to like a father would give origin to something he is the one who gave origin to everything that exists as light the sun the moon the stars the galaxies that he is the father the creator of all these things and listen it is that awesome god who created the massive powerful bodies of light that exist in the galaxies of this universe saying it is good it is that same powerful good God who is desiring to continually send good things into your life and who has the same power from his word that he just spoke into existence, these massive bodies, the sun, the stars, that same God with the same goodness, with the same power is the one who wants to help and provide what is good for you and me. And the wonderful thing is James says, and he never changes. He never changes. He's constant in his nature. He says in verse 17, look at it there, with him there is no variation. The idea there is that God never varies. Who he is, the way he works, it always remains consistent. Who he is and what he does will always be the same. Malachi 3.6, God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. God will not change. 
God cannot change. This is what we call the immutability of God, that he cannot deviate from who he is. He will always be who he has been, and he will continue to be that throughout all of time and eternity. He is constant, the constancy of God, and we can rest assured that he will continually be who he is. He says here in verse 17 as well, with God, notice, there is no shadow of turning. It's almost another way of saying God's not shady. With God, there's no shadow of turning. There is nothing in God's nature, nothing shady within him that would cause him to one day turn, listen, like people do sometimes. Because sometimes people seem good initially and then you start to realize, well, it's a little shady there. And all of a sudden, it starts to, to come out a little bit and there's this turning, there's this turning of who they once revealed themselves to be or a turning of how they once related to us. Unlike people, here's the idea, God's never affected by anything. God doesn't have mood swings. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God never has a bad day where he's just kind of off and he's just kind of in one of those moods and so he's a little bit off in the way he relates to us and so somehow it's different experiences don't affect God God never loses control in a stressful and pressure filled moment where all of a sudden I'm sorry I just lost control there for a moment the universe would be in really bad shape if God just lost control for a moment he remains constant and reliable and consistent and there's not the slightest measure of inconsistency with God. He is a rock. He is stable. He's constant. This is one of the things that so attracts me about who God is because I tell you this, I love people but I don't find that in human beings starting with myself. And yet God is that constant factor and the more we embrace God, the more we look to God, the more stability and constancy begins to come into our own lives. He's not going to one day change in his kindness and his favor towards you just because he had a bad experience with you, just because something happened that disappointed him. And we all know the truth of the matter. Sometimes that'll happen in a relationship. There's this favor towards you and this, and then all of a sudden something happens, a disappointment, a bad experience, and all of a sudden the relationship takes a turn and that person's no more favorable towards you. They turned. Listen, God will never do that. He'll never do that because of not who you are and how well you do, but because of who he is. The Bible says he remains faithful even when we're faithless because he can't deny himself. He's constant. He's reliable. Now, continuing with this idea of God as this good, constant, reliable father, he then goes on with this idea of fatherhood in verse 18 by saying of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he speaks here in verse 18 of how God gives birth to spiritual life just like a father gives birth to physical life it's God who gives birth to the spiritual life that we might become a child of God some other translations render verse 18 this way he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created another translation renders verse 18 this way in his goodness he chose to make us his own children by giving us his true word and we out of all creation have now become his choice possession. See, the Bible teaches us that though we are born with physical life, 
that no human being is born with spiritual life. This is a biblical truth from the Garden of Eden. Spiritual life was lost in the day that sin entered into the world with Adam and Eve. And so though physical life from Adam and Eve can keep being passed on, procreation, procreation, they did not possess spiritual life because they lost that life when sin entered into the garden. And so people are born with physical life, but we don't begin life with anything of a spiritual life within us. That is something that must be received from God to enter into a relationship with him as our creator. By nature, sin separates us from God, but God sent Jesus to reconcile us into a relationship with our creator. So through Jesus, who came as a man, lived the sinless life that you and I don't live as human beings in his humanity, and then stepped into our place and sacrificially died in our stead as a man, being sinless, fulfilling the righteous requirements of a holy God. And Jesus took the punishment for our sin for us as the perfect man. And then after dying on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment, he rose again, defeating the power of sin and death. And now he, as the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, is the one to be able to reconcile us to God. And God the Father gives people opportunity to experience life spiritually and eternally by their coming to his son as the mediator to be able to receive the spiritual and eternal life that only Jesus can supply. And as we receive that from Jesus, the Bible teaches what we might call a conversion happens, a conversion of the soul where the deadness within us spiritually comes alive spiritually and a birth happens. A spiritual life begins. We're born into God's family. This is very simply what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus who was a religious not only man but a religious leader he pushed all the buttons did all the right things from his upbringing to his adulthood he attended the right services he said the right prayers he read the right bible verses he knew the christian ethics and the or, or the spiritual ethics and the moral ways to live with god and yet jesus saw in his soul listen you are extremely religious and that's good i see you're seeking but there's something still missing and Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, that's strange, when we be born again. Can I enter back into my mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, no, no, you're misunderstanding, but I'm trying to draw a principle here. He says, that which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit becomes spirit. Nicodemus, don't marvel, I say, you must be born again. Just like you had to be born physically to begin a physical life, you also, every person in the same way has to be born spiritually to begin a spiritual life, to truly begin to have a life with God. And so Jesus just speaks of this reality that we don't naturally just become spiritual. We, we at some point must receive spiritual life from outside of ourselves when we come to God and realize, God, I want to be in a relationship with you, but unless you give me spiritual life and cause me to have a spiritual birth, it cannot happen. And this is a necessary thing. My question this morning to you is, have you been born again? great you're in church good you're seeking god and wanting to be more that's a wonderful thing but have you had a spiritual birth 
Have you come alive to God? That must happen for every person at some point in their life. And what James is describing here is this is what God wants. In fact, he says God is the initiator of this. He says of his own will, he brought us forth or caused us to be born, the idea is. Of his own will. God's the initiator. God created the plan of salvation out of his goodness and his love. He didn't forsake us as sinful people. God created the pathway to have a spiritual life. And not only that, God chooses us to be adopted as his children. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It's all God's idea. He's the initiator. He chose for humanity to have a way to be saved and he chose for you to become one of his children. He wants you to be his child. There's no illegitimate spiritual child. God chose you. He wants you to be his child. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, as many as receive Jesus, he gives them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Born not of blood or the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The idea is that God himself is the author and the one who is the one who initiates and brings about salvation, the salvation experience. It's a work of God. He and his love made a way for us. He and his love pursued you personally. He knew what it took to reach into my life and to reveal himself to me and to let me realize what the need was in my own soul spiritually and brought me to a place where finally it clicked. I understand now, Lord. That makes sense to me. And he brought me to that place where the Spirit of God makes it evident. You need Jesus in your life. And I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Would you just open the door, humble yourself in faith, ask me to save you? That's all the work of God, of his own will. He brings it forth in our lives. And he himself does that supernatural work of salvation that converts our soul. When it happens, he says here, by hearing the word of truth. He does it by the word of truth. Even as it takes two parents to bring about physical life, it takes two things to bring about spiritual life. The word of God and the spirit of God. These two things working in conjunction bring about salvation. In Ephesians 1, it says, In Jesus you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See, as we hear the gospel message, the word of truth, and we hear what's true about ourselves and our condition, as we hear what Jesus did for us, as we hear about what Jesus is offering to us through the word of truth, then the Holy Spirit takes that divine truth and he brings conviction in the human soul. And he brings a convincing within a heart and he brings about the salvation experience so that we become children of God as the Holy Spirit births this in our lives and we become the first fruits, it says, of his creatures. The first fruits were always the best of the harvest. And I think what James is alluding to here to his Jewish readers is the best part to God is when all those he's created, because he's created every human being, when some of those he's created choose to accept his spirit's work to become children of God spiritually, God says, oh, that's the first fruits. That's the best. When those I've created actually become spiritual children on top of just being created by God himself. Well, verse 19, James then gets a little practical. He says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness 
of God. So he gives some practical instruction, I believe here, regarding being submissive to the goodness of God so that we might not live in ways that dishonor God. Now, given the context of the passage here as we've been looking at it, seems to be in relationship to God being a good spiritual father to his children spiritually, I believe, my own personal conviction, it is very likely that the primary context and intent of the injunctions of verse 19 and 20 are in regards to our response and relationship to God as a good father, that it's more proper and wise to be submissive to him and have author- let him have authority over our lives in the same way a child, if they're wise, realizes it's good to listen to, be submissive and be obedient and not rebel in anger against the authority of their parent. And that happens in practical ways. He says that as a man, first of all, I need to realize in my relationship with God that it's good for me as a man that I would be swift or quick to hear. That is what God is saying to me. That I would have a heart that out of respect and reverence for who God is in my life, not just my creator, but now my father, that I would want to listen to what my father says because he's a good dad, that I have a readiness and a willingness to want to hear his voice, that I want to listen to what God's word says to me, whether it's correction, whether it's a warning or guidance or God's asking me to do something that I would have a swiftness and a quickness to be ready and wanting to hear what God says, wanting to hear what he wants to say to me. A good child relates properly to their father by listening to their father's voice. That's what a good child does. They respect who their father is and so therefore they listen to what their father says. They give proper attention and respect to what their father says to them because they understand the nature of the role and its benefit in their lives. And this is the idea with us as a father, uh, with God as our father. As a good father, we realize it would do me best to always be very quick to want to listen and act upon what God says to me because he's a good father. And so whatever he wants to say, I want to hear it. And as a child as well, we also need, therefore, he says, to learn to be slow to speak. That is to use restraint in our speaking so we can listen to and obey what our father's saying. And I think perhaps that's important because sometimes we spend a lot of time telling God what we think. We spend a lot of time maybe complaining about what God's doing or not doing or even sometimes prayerfully couching it in prayer but pushing our way. Sometimes as Christians, we can be very guilty of always being busy about telling everybody else about what's going on in our life. And we spend a lot of time dialoguing and telling everyone else or asking everyone else's input for our life. Or sometimes as Christians, we can become very guilty as well, always talking about ourselves or feeling we need to be the one to share something. And see, all those things can become hindrances to hear sometimes what God's trying to say to us. They can be things that distract us and help us in a way to, to really, I shouldn't say help, but you know, can cause us to miss what God's trying to say. And in the same way, we know this in human relationships, is it not true? It's hard to get someone to hear something you need to say if they never stop talking. I found out in a few counseling sessions a couple times. Sometimes it's very difficult to get someone to actually listen to maybe what they might need to hear if they never stop talking and just 
listen and have a willingness to listen and become more slow to speak and more quick and willing to want to listen. And sometimes as Christians, this can be a spiritual problem in our relationship with God as our Father. We need to learn to sometimes just be a little more quiet and still before God and give God a chance by His still small voice to speak to us. Ecclesiastes 5 says, When you go to the house of God, draw near to hear. And don't be rash with your mouth, but let your words be few. The idea is when we seek God, sometimes we need to learn to say less and speak efficiently, even in our prayer lives. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? When you pray, don't use vain repetitions, Jesus said, as the heathen do. They think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of when you ask of him. Sometimes I wonder if we might hear God speak to us more if even when we're praying, we would slow down and be a little more intentional and efficient with our words instead of just rambling with you know, almost personal nervousness when we're in the presence of God. There are times when I pray together with other believers and I think, why is everybody so freaked out about being just silent for a moment? You know, somebody stops praying. Well, let me bother. And say, well, goodness gracious. And, and what, here's, what, here's the downside to this. Let me explain because it, it helps with group prayer, corporate prayer. If someone else is praying, I should be in my spirit agreeing together with that, giving amen to that, putting my faith together with that. If I'm already thinking about what I want to pray as soon as they're done praying, I might as well just pray alone. <laughs> And here's what I found, that when we have the ability to just settle down, be swift to hear, slow to speak in the presence of God, even in prayer, in our personal prayer life, we may hear God's still small voice say things to us sometimes. And when we're praying together, we may actually, at times, if we're quiet for a moment, be able to hear the Lord prompt us with what we really should pray for and how we should pray, perhaps, in regards to a particular situation. And isn't it all sometimes if you just stay quiet in prayer? And I'm not saying you have to sit still in prayer and, and never pray out loud. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it isn't an awesome thing when you can be quiet in prayer for a moment and there's an impression maybe God brings to your heart and then you don't pray and the person over here prays that thing. And you think, whoa. And here's what you begin to, to realize when you participate in prayer. and those, you, The Holy Spirit is directed in the prayer here because that impression came on my heart and, and now this guy over here prayed that. And, and it's the Spirit of the Lord directing the prayer meeting. It's something very beautiful happens when we can sort of like good children just sort of learn to stop talking and, and pay attention when our parent is speaking and as God's children, we want to develop that discipline. He also says as well, not just to be swift to hear and slow to speak, but he says also slow to wrath for the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of of God. Now, I think that's a third practical way to relate to the goodness of God as my Father. To learn to be slow to wrath, the wrath of man. The wrath of man is always a bad thing. The wrath of God is a good, measured, proper, righteous anger. The wrath of man is outbursts in improper ways. And I think what perhaps he's reminding us is I should never get angry or have wrath towards God's role in my life as my Father. And if we were all honest, sometimes as people, we may not like what God has to say to us. And so we get angry. Or we may not like what God's doing in our life or what God's allowed to happen. And so we get angry with God. And like children, we can get angry when we don't get our way. 
We can get angry when things don't go the way that we want them to go or we can't be in charge. And just like a little child, we can get a little disgruntled with God and we get angry with God. And sometimes then we act out in our anger towards God. First of all, let's just remember, who am I to get angry with God? And I'll be the first to admit I've done it before. But quite frankly, who am I to get angry with, with God? I'm a man. And he's a good father anyway. And James says here, listen, be careful, because he says the wrath of man, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Nothing good ever happens when a child of God gets angry at God and acts out in their anger. Right? Nothing. We just end up doing unrighteous things. It doesn't produce anything good. We don't respond the right way. If you want to wonder how it really works out when a child of God gets angry at God, just read the book of Jonah. He got a little angry at God, did his own thing. Great story. It's only four chapters. Read it this week. Now, in a secondary sense, let me say the principles of verse 19 and 20. I think they also do apply very well and sufficiently for our human relationships as God's children interacting with one another, that we also would be swift or quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. It's important that we become good listeners as God's children with other people. Listen, the way people relate to each other in the world without God's work in their life, it's cruel, it's horrible, it's, 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 it's miserable. We were there once. But among God's people, we can represent something different. We can relate to people differently in our jobs, in our schools, in our families. And as God's people, it's important we become good listeners with caring, compassionate hearts that we'd be ready and willing to take the time to hear somebody out, to listen to someone, to let them speak their mind, to actually give them audience and hear them out. Imagine the effect in our relationships if we all took more time just to be quicker to listen. They just listen. It's often been said before. God created us in a way that our head is a human parable. It is two ears and one mouth. There it is. Two ears, one mouth. God said there's a parable right on your head when you're looking to someone else that we'd be more quick to listen, more slow to speech, that we'd restrain our speech, maybe slow down the pace of how fast I am to answer, express my feelings and my thoughts, so quick to want to give my opinion or prove my point, that I'd be more slow at times in considering what I should say or maybe even how much I should say in a situation. And this is something by the power of the Holy Spirit and self-control. We need to grow in these areas. Proverbs 10:19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Simple interpretation, the more I speak, the higher the percentage of chance I'm going to start sinning. The more I say, the better chance I'm going to sin. And the longer I talk, sometimes the better chance I'm going to say something that's not helpful. I love Proverbs as well. It says that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. Take time to hear the matter out first. Especially in those occasions when somebody comes to you, he did this. Okay. Before you instantly just respond or establish a home team, take the time to listen to someone else too if there were two people involved because he says if you answer a matter before you hear it out thoroughly it's going to end up being a folly and a shame what you typically do and boy I've lived that out more than once before so he says here be swift to hear 
slow to speak and slow to wrath. Holy Spirit, give us control, better self-control to not get angry so quickly with people, frustrated so quickly, again, because he says that never produces the righteousness of God. As a Christian, if you're not handling your anger constructively, and you're going to get angry, but if you don't handle it constructively, it's always going to produce destructive things in your life. It's going to produce destructive, unrighteous things in your family and tarnish your testimony. Well, as a mature believer, James knows that listening to and submitting to God's truth is what helps produce a righteousness in our lives. So he concludes in verse 21 saying, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James shows here that we're responsible to prepare our heart condition to be receptive to the truth of God's word and that will bring what is good and righteous in our lives. He pictures here in verse 21, the word of God like seed. He says, receive the implanted word. And a seed has everything contained within it to produce life and fruit. And in the same way, metaphorically, God's word is like seed. God's word like seed has everything contained within it to produce spiritual life and spiritual fruit. That's why it is good to let it be planted into our lives. It has the DNA spiritually of the life of God within it And when the spirit-inspired word of God is sown and planted in a heart, it produces change. It brings transformation. It brings life and fruit and growth. And often the condition of the soil that the seed is planted in can influence the extent of the harvest. And the same is true spiritually with the heart condition of a person when the seed of God's word is put in it. That's what Jesus talked about when he talked about the parable of the soils and how different soil types yielded different fruit. And he's saying, look, the word of God is like seed and the condition of the heart can have an influence on how a person experiences the highest impact of the word of God in their life. I think that's maybe what James is drawing on here, why he does say in verse 21, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. What's he saying? Remove from your life everything that's there that's like weeds that's going to choke out the life of God and the power of the word of God. Get it out of your life, he says. Remove these things. Rid yourself from sinful things you may be engaged in. If you're involved in something that's filthy or wicked, set aside those things. Make a conscious choice to repent. Lord, I need to cease these things. They are interfering with my obedience to your word and it's making my heart hardened and I'm not hearing what your word is trying to say to me. So he says, rid yourself of what's not good. The imagery, pull up the weeds to clear out the garden, choking the life of God. And he says, and endeavor, therefore, as well, to receive with meekness the implanted word. The idea is to receive with meekness, to allow your heart instead to be governed by the truth of the word of God. To let your heart, instead of being ruled and driven by sinful passions and desires and sowing to the flesh, rather, he's saying, let your life be directed by the Spirit and the Spirit's influence in your life. And the way to do that, as he says, to receive with meekness the implanted word. To receive with meekness. Meekness speaks of the ability to humble yourself under the authority of another and submit. And this is to be our attitude towards the authority of God as our Father and God's Word as our Father. That we would have a meek attitude and a receptive, obedient spirit to the Word of God. 
that so many times has been implanted in our lives. Listen, I, I'm certain this morning, especially if you've intend here periodically and, and just knowing many of you, I am certain you regularly hear the word of God, the implanted word, the word of God. It's being sown into your life again and again and again and again. But the question is, how are you responding to the word? What is your level of receptivity to the word of God? This is important that we would have a receptive spirit to the word of God because as a Christian, he says here, God's word is able to save your soul from trouble and regrets and bad things that can even come into your life if you don't listen to the word of God as a Christian. And as an unsafe person, it's God's word that's able to save your soul from the judgment of hell that your sin deserves. It's God's word. If you hear what's being implanted in you by the truth of God's word, that can bring you to a place to cry out to Jesus for salvation. Because God is good. We should have a receptiveness to his word. For his word is able to save us from ruining our lives by bad choices, bad decisions. We serve a good father who has good instruction, and as we respond to that and have a receptivity to that, a whole lot of bad things can be avoided in a lot of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we humbly ask that you would even this very hour, by your Spirit's work, give to us a greater receptivity to the voice of God, to the Spirit of God, to the truth of your word in our lives. Lord, in the very next verses, you write about how we should be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, may what we've heard this morning not be something that we think that was great information, but God help me this week to be receptive to what you've said to me personally through this text. Help us to be receptive and respond to what you have said to us by your spirit this morning. And Father, if there's anyone here who your Holy Spirit has spoken to in regards to the condition of their soul, if they're not yet born again of your spirit and they want, Lord, to know they have a spiritual life, I pray this day you'd give them the humility and the faith to want to call upon Jesus just to exercise their faith and to tell you, Lord, that they want to begin a spiritual life, that they understand and that they desire it for themselves. Before we stand and sing this final song together, I want to give you an opportunity, if that's you this morning, and you want to take a stand for Jesus Christ, you understand these things and you say, you know what? I I want to be born spiritually. I want to start a spiritual life. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a complicated thing. It's a matter of understanding these things, but you have to exercise your faith. It's your faith that saves you. It's a free gift of grace. You don't earn it. There comes a day of decision. Just like a child is born at a set hour on a set day, there's a spiritual birth that happens the day we understand and we exercise our faith to call upon the Lord for salvation. And today... You can pray in this room to do that right here. If someone led me in a prayer, I would love to lead you in a prayer if that's you. God knows the condition of your heart. He's the God of salvation. If that's you this morning and you would like 
to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you where you're at. You can pray this prayer right there. God sees the faith in your heart. It's the sincerity of your faith that God sees.